Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headline on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Anna Lazarus. Beyond the Headline is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also like and comment on this podcast anywhere you listen. Today we invite Caroline Bruyette from the Canadian Climate Network and Tom Green from the Suzuki Foundation for a conversation about climate action. We discuss Canada's path towards net zero emissions and sustainability. This is the first of many conversations beyond the headlines aims to have about climate change and climate mitigation policy. Caroline Bruyette is a national policy manager at Climate Action Network. Before joining CANRAC, Caroline was a climate policy analyst at Equiter, where she supported the organization's federal and provincial government relationships. She holds a master in public policy from the National University of Singapore. So, hi, it's nice to meet you. Um, so, do you want to start us off, uh, Caroline, by telling us a little bit about yourself and the Climate Action Network? Sure. I, my name is Tahoni at Climate Action Network Canada, which is um, the country's largest coalition of groups working together on climate. Our members are amazing and include not only environmental NGOs, but also Indigenous rights groups, um, unions, work, people who work on human rights and internationally. And so we're really this kind of big tent where um, folks across the climate movement come together and work together to for Canada to do its fair share of the global efforts to fight climate change, both nationally and internationally. Amazing. So we did want to talk a little bit about the impact of the 2022 federal government, the budget, basically. So to kind of get us rolling, the 2022 budget proposed to give about $2.2 billion over seven years, starting in 2022-2023, to the Environment and Climate Change Canada to expand the low carbon economy fund. So what would you say is the key goal of this fund and how has it how do you expect it will it will do in the coming years? So this fund is where um, the federal government puts money towards provinces, municipalities, indigenous nations um, that have projects that are related to the low carbon fiscal transfers to these other levels of governance of of government. I can talk a little bit more more broadly about this budget, though, from a climate perspective. So about nine point one billion in spending um, on the emissions reductions plan, which um, will go towards the adoption of zero emissions vehicle. So charging stations, but also consumer purchase incentives. Um, we also signed that budget expanding program to fund building retrofits. So making our, 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 our building lower in carbon and closer to net zero for 1 billion. There's 3.8 billion for a critical mineral strategy that can help upscale a number of, of key industries for the clean economy, but the how is really key here um, because Canada's mining industry historically has been extractive, both for the environment and, and for people. And on the maybe less nuanced side, it was really frustrating to see this budget create a $2.6 billion investment tax credit for carbon capture, utilization, and, and storage. So that's basically money that goes to oil and gas companies who, uh, who have been making record profits in the past years. We're thinking about $34 billion in 2021. And so it's another form of a fossil fuel subsidy. So when we take a generous view of all of this and we tally it up, we get to about $12 billion in spending on climate-related programs in 2022-2023. That might look like a big number, and it has been going up over the years, which is good, but it's far from sufficient. So economist Nicholas Stern has been advocating to that for us to do to confront the, the climate crisis with um, the urgency it demands, we should spend at least 2% of GDP in uh, on climate 
climate investments. And so that would be 40 billion uh, a year of uh, investing on, on climate change. So unfortunately, budget 2022 falls short in that regards. What would you say are the key climate policy changes in this budget if you were to compare it to last year's or the year before's budget? So to be completely honest, the budget is not really where I look to see policy changes in terms of climate. These key policies are really in our emissions reductions plan, which we've been seeing different iterations in the past year. And the last version, the 2030 emissions reductions plan was tabled. I was actually going to ask you if the if you think the budget has given, you know, the necessary funding for the government to go ahead with the emission reduction plan that's been set for 2030. So the answer here is probably not in light of what I've said before, right? We know that uh, compared to this international best practice of spending 2% of annual GDP in climate, we're falling far from that. This said, it's really hard to know because A, budgets don't take a long view, but rather look at spending in the next three years. But also because one key piece that we were looking for in the emissions reduction plans, which I might use the wonky acronym for it, the ERP, was not in there. So we were hoping to see for each policy measure the budget disbursements that would come with it, which ministry would be responsible, what would be the timeline for the policy. So basically a nice work plan where it's really clear who does what, when, and with what budget. Unfortunately, that wasn't in the ERP. So it's kind of really hard to look at those two documents, the 2022 budget and then the ERP, and assess whether, you know, how these two documents talk to each other. So hopefully um, in the next years, we'll be able to um, have a better governance, a whole of government approach to climate change. And that includes being really clear about what money and what funds we're putting on the table to achieve our objectives. So historically, Canada has missed every single emissions reductions target that we've ever set for ourselves. The reason for that was not because our targets were too ambitious, quite the contrary. It was because of a critical lack of climate governance. In other words, um, we didn't have this framework that was clearly mandating government to plan, report at regular intervals on meeting our GHG emissions uh, reductions goals. So to take an example that I'm sure your listeners are, are familiar with, when you have a big paper or a big group assignment due, if you start looking at it the night before, <laughs> you probably won't get there. And unfortunately, historically, that's kind of Canada's approach. And I, I, I'm happy to say it has changed quite significantly in, in past years. But what we would do is we would set a target and then do nothing practically or do, you know, a couple of things here and there and then arrive and be like, oops, um, obviously I'm, I'm making a caricature of, of all of this. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but that's what we mean by this lack of governance. And a really significant thing that happened last summer was the adoption of the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. It was a, uh, adopted by parties across the aisle, the Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc, and the Greens. Unfortunately, um, the Conservatives voted against this, this really key part of, of climate policy. But what the Act does is that it holds government accountable to table plans. And the ERP, the Emissions Reductions Plan, is one of those plans. And then report on these plans. It also sets some inter intermediary targets every five years. So we start at 2026, and then we have 2030, 2025, and so on uh, until 2050. And it puts together an advisory body that will you know, help assess in an independent fashion government progress on, on climate. So basically now we're a lot better equipped to deliver on our plans. A lot of this will depend on 
whether we deliver the policies, whether the government delivers the policies with the ambition and the rigor that we need. And a lot of them are currently in the works. So we'll really need to make sure that government doesn't dilute or delay in a way that, you know, unfortunately, the fossil fuel industry has been pushing for in past years. I think that That's kind of a complicated question because people will define sustainable economic growth in in different ways. But what I can answer is what are the key challenges in Canada transitioning to a sustainable economy? And I would say the, the really big one right now is that we have a population which in poll after poll after poll, um, really places climate at the top of its concerns. What happens, as I just mentioned, is then, you know, the government commits to these really important and ambitious policies. And we need more of these policies for sure. But then you have industry uh, coming in to kind of delay and dilute, which has been unfortunately, you know, a really key, I would say, tenant of climate or lack thereof, like climate action or lack thereof in the past years across the world, right? You've had an industry that has misinformed and lobbied against uh, uh, climate regulations. So that's one big challenge. And I would say the other one is that we need to make sure that this transition is really people-centered, it is inclusive, it's fair, And so, you know, the concept of a just transition is really important here, right? Making sure that not only people are part of the decision making for them, for their communities, and especially communities that have been marginalized by our our extractive economies over time. So racialized Canadians, but also indigenous peoples, um, that they're not only at the table, that we make sure that no one is left behind through this transition. You mentioned the government has been developing some infrastructure to address climate-specific policy um, and put this forward. What would you say are key infrastructures or tools that we don't have in place that other countries do and that we should be working on? So when I look at, um, you know, what the United States um, has just put forward, they they tabled, well, they presented the first iteration of the Inflation um, Reduction Act 2022, which is the country's um, largest ever spending on, on climate policies. And, um, you know, this bill is really imperfect. There are many poison pills in it, and I don't want to minimize those imperfections. But I think one thing that we can learn from from that is really, you know, spending lots of of money where if we compare, you know, the spending in there compared to Canada's 2022 budget per capita, it is three times bigger. So these kind of really massive investments in not only incentives, but also creating new new, um, institutions um, like a public Uh, uh, bank where uh, communities, municipalities, indigenous nations um, can um, uh, borrow money to kind of uh, fund their own initiatives is really key. So kind of, you know, shame if um, shifting our our frame of mind away from a neoliberal um, economic policy towards the government playing a really active and and transformational and even creative role in our economy and society, because that's what we're going to need to face um, the climate crisis at the scope and scale it demands. In the past, and and even now, the government has invested massively in cap and trade and um, carbon tax initiatives, because they're said to be efficient in terms of, of market. Would you say it would there are better ways to address our, our carbon emissions? Should we be looking at better regulation instead of letting the market kind of auto-regulate itself? Right. Well, so I'm I'm an economist. I studied economics. So, you know, in school, all I heard about was putting a price on carbon as the best solution to fix climate change, right? 
Economists like that solution because, as you said, it is efficient. However, when we think of climate policy, efficiency shouldn't be our only criteria. We should also think of equity and justice. We should also think of what is politically interesting to voters, right? Because if the price on carbon is the same for everyone, it means that richer Canadians will be less impacted by it than poorer Canadians. And, you know, the way we've structured the federal uh, carbon pricing in Canada addresses that to some extent by recycling uh, the revenue and sending it back to families and families who are most in need get more money. This said, there's another really important criteria that we need to look at because the climate crisis is an issue of time, right? We have very little time to reduce our emissions at, at a scale and pace that is compatible with limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. And so I don't think carbon pricing is the most if, um, the best tool to meet this time challenge. And what you were saying about, you know, regulations simply mandating companies to reduce emissions, like what we're hoping to see on the oil and gas sector, our preference was a hard cap on these emissions, right? Also thinking about a new mandate um, that is currently in the, in the works for electric vehicles, right? We need to mandate companies to produce more and more EVs so that eventually all of our, all of new vehicles are, are emissions free in 2035 as we committed to, and the government is currently working on this policy. But definitely, I think regulation is an important option when we think of, of this kind of necessity to move fast. And then the equity and fairness part needs to be thought of in terms of, you know, spending, creating new programs, because the reality is that to completely decarbonize our economy, we can do this in a way that makes folks' communities much more pleasant to live, where the air is cleaner, um, so we're healthier, right? We need to do that in a way that brings everyone along, and that includes things that respond to some very pressing needs that Canadians ha have in terms of health, housing, good jobs, limiting inflation, as we're seeing right now. So we need to have an all of the above approach to the convergence of crises that we're in. You did mention electric vehicles and the government has in the past favored electric vehicles or zero emission vehicles in their budget and their policy. Do you think this focus on zero emission vehicles might pull away from provincial and municipal attempts to incentivize other modes of transportation, like investments in public transit and trying to diversify transportation? Right. So there are kind of two questions in there. The first one is how do we decarbonize transportation? And then the other one is around federal, provincial, territorial coordination. So to answer the first one, um, folks who work on, on transportation at the UN level has have put forward a principle approach to decarbonizing transport. And it's called, well, I, I'm sorry, I know the word in French, but, so I'll just explain it. Um, basically, we need to start by making our communities more livable and mean that we have to travel smaller distances, right? So our urban planning or land use planning, this needs to be rethought. We need to kind of stop expanding highways and the urban sprawl. So that's the first thing we have to do. The second is that we need to invest massively, as you said, in public and active transportation um, so that people switch from the solo car to these more efficient modes of transportation. And then finally, there will be some, some vehicles remaining on the road for, for folks who live in remote communities, for instance, or who have a job that requires them to use a pickup, a pickup truck. Well, for these remaining cars on the road, that's when um, electrification becomes really important. So we have to do these three things in order, but also do them all at the same time. The federal government, to answer to the second question about federal provincial coordination, has been investing quite massively in uh, recent years in public transit 
for municipalities and provinces, as well as active transportation. What it is trying to do with this ZEV mandate um, policy that I mentioned is create a national trans, uh, a national standard. So we have a policy like that in Quebec, where I'm currently based from. There's also one in what's currently called BC, uh, British Columbia. And the government, as it has done on, on multiple other fronts like carbon pricing or even healthcare, is trying to set a national standard so that other provinces uh, join the fray of ac accessing uh, EVs. Because the reality now is that there's long wait lists for folks everywhere, but especially those uh, in provinces that don't have such a, a measure in place. As we talk more and more about electric vehicles, we have to also understand that in the coming years, there will be a high number of them who will have batteries that will need to be retired and recycled. Do you believe federal and provincial governments have put in place the necessary policies to ensure that they are recycled and repurposed properly or in sustainable ways, knowing that a very high percentage of them are not currently being recycled? Short answer is no, unfortunately, and that's something we're really going to have uh, to think um, long and hard about and propose policy for, because as I mentioned earlier, um, we can't simply mine our way out of the climate crisis and change our economy in a way that reproduce these extractive type of industries that have characterized this fossil fuel economy that we're, we're trying to diversify from. Um, when I think of, you know, an extractive economy, I mean extractive on, on people, on workers, uh, so that they don't necessarily have good conditions, but also on the land. And in the context of our country, what is currently called Canada, um, that must absolutely do, uh, that must absolutely be done in, in respect of Indigenous rights and, and sovereignty. Oops, you're muted. So we have talked about initiatives that are up and coming and slowly being developed. We've also have been talking recently in the news a lot about the oil and gas cap uh, and the division of emissions. So can you tell us the difference between scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions? For sure. So scope one emissions are emissions that occur from the oil and gas extraction process. So think of a methane leak that happens uh, while drilling. The scope two emissions are from energy purchased by the company who's doing um, the extraction. So for instance, the emissions uh, related to the electricity uh, generated to power a refinery. And finally, scope three emissions are those that occur across the supply chain. And that includes emissions from burning oil and gas produced by the company, right? So if I buy, um, if I go to the station, and fill up my car and then drive off my car and say it's a shell station. This would be scope three emissions for shell. The issue in Canada is that we export a lot of the fossil fuels we produce. So a lot of these emissions that are scope three happen outside of our borders and they are substantial. So there's data that was secured um, from Environment Canada by EcoJustice that shows that in 2019, our emissions from exported fossil fuels were 954 megatons. In comparison, the total emissions across the Canadian economy uh, within our borders that year were 700 and 30 megatons, right? So our exported um, emissions are bigger than our total domestic emissions. So we really need to address that elephant in the room. Unfortunately, the discussion paper that was published two weeks ago on the um, oil and gas emissions cap uh, said that scope three emissions would not be included under the cap. This said, we need to make sure that the government adopts some mechanism to limit those emissions. And we've used some in the past, notably to limit coal exports. So we'll be keeping an eye out to how the government uses similar mechanisms and applies them to oil and gas that is exported outside Canada. How do you think the government's choice to exclude scope three emissions will kind of play out on a policy standpoint? 
do you think there will be advantages um, to doing this? Do you think it might kind of stimulate development, sustainable tech, uh, green innovation? So I, you know, I think the way we report on um, emissions internationally is made so that we don't count emissions that occur outside our borders. That makes sense from an international perspective, right? Because each country needs to take responsibility for some um, part of the... This said, it doesn't mean that Canada, a, a fossil fuel producer, a country with extremely high, not only per capita, but also in absolute emissions uh, emitter, uh, shouldn't take responsibility uh, for these fuels, especially as, you know, the infrastructure that we're building right now to extract, transport, or export uh, oil and gas is all geared towards foreign markets. So at some point, we do have to address this elephant in the room that is the continued expansion of fossil fuel production. And I think that only when we do that, we can diversify our economy away from a sector that globally we are moving away from. The reality, as the International Energy Agency has said, is that if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, we can't invest in any new oil, gas, and coal developments. And you know, every country in the world wants to be the last producer standing in the context of a reducing demand. The reality is that Canada's oil is not only extremely carbon intensive, it is extremely expensive. So the chances of us being that last producer standing are extremely slim and strategically it would make a lot more sense to make a good plan for how we transition away from that sector and into the sustainable economy sectors and jobs of the future. When we think about the impact of our exports on other countries and on rising emissions in other countries and other states, I think a lot of people refer to climate action a little bit as the tragedy of the commons. Because everyone kind of would benefit from everybody taking climate action. But if only one country does so, then the benefits are lesser. So, you know, how do we sell climate policy, not just to governments, but also to Canadians when, you know, we're looking at our neighbors in the States or, you know, in other countries who are not doing, we're not taking the same steps we are. That's a really great question. And what's interesting is that, When we look at this tragedy of the commons hypothesis, empirically, it actually doesn't hold up, right? Um, So I I invite you to um, read this really um, interesting meta-analysis by Professor Matthew Mildenberger. So he looks at you know, this theory and basically finds out that what drives um, climate policy is not like countries don't get out of international agreements or resigned their climate policies when other countries start acting slower or kind of, for instance, when um, Trump got out of, of the Paris Agreement. What drives climate action is domestic pressure and the domestic concern for climate policy. So that's, that brings us to the second part of your question, which is how do we sell it to um, uh, Canadians? I think the reality is that um, Canadians are feeling the impacts of the climate crisis here and now. We've had a summer full of heat waves. Last summer was uh, very um, tragic, especially for folks on the West Coast, thinking of the community of Lytton that was completely burned to the ground, there was also a heat dome. So Canadians uh, are actually very concerned about these uh, extreme weather events. What I think our community maybe needs to get better at is to sell the co-benefits of climate action. Climate action isn't only good because um, it makes us safer in the face of increasing um, and more frequent extreme weather events and climate impacts. It also makes the air cleaner and so we're healthier. It makes our communities more pleasant um, to live in and to move in. It creates jobs that are more sustainable. 
I could go on and on. So that's what we need to put the, the emphasis on and really uh, what, we're, what we're focusing on and, and hoping to work on at Climate Action Network Canada. Yes, uh, I completely agree with that. Given that so much of our policy is determined by what, what is perceived as the will of the electorate and what could pass in um, elections, do you think Canadians are ready to see more drastic policy changes in the coming years? Well, I would answer that the government has committed to some pretty serious um, policies. These policies are, you know, they're not the whole package. There's a lot more we need to do. But if they're implemented in a rigorous, ambitious, and without delay manner, this could, th these policies could be really big. We're talking about a clean electricity standard that could mean that in 2035, our electricity is, is, is completely clean from renewable sources if it's done right. We're talking about transforming uh, our, our vehicle fleet with a ZEV mandate. We're talking about capping the oil and gas emissions, uh, the oil and gas sector's emissions. The question here is, will it be done right? Will the government succumb to pressure by the fossil fuel industry, but also by utilities across the country to delay, dilute, include some loopholes? So that is really the big question. Canadians are ready. Is the government ready to implement these boldly and ambitiously? And to finish us off, what advice would you have to give to Canadians who are either unsatisfied with the government's steps or just not seeing the changes they want to be seeing? That's such an important question. And I think to some extent includes many, many of us. Um, I would say that engage in collective action. So we are often portrayed as consumers in our way of, of participating or responding to the climate crisis. But what's even uh, more important is our role as citizens and how we use that role. So that includes not only voting, but organizing with your community, with your neighbors, whether it's at the local level, at the provincial level, or at the federal level, joining these initiatives where we get um, greater than the sum of our parts is really how we make change and how we um, will we'll get to a transition that is just, that is inclusive towards a sustainable economy, right? Because um, the transition is a verb that we all have to participate in. Awesome. And just quickly, what resources would you have to recommend to our listeners who are trying to learn more about climate action and trying to understand the policies that are coming up on their, on their newsfeed? I really like Matthew Mildenberger. Um, I'm not sure which university he's based at. Uh, I think he's in um, the, the, on the West Coast in the States. I would also recommend uh, Catherine Harrison in Canada who does some really um, great analysis. Perfect. Thank you very much. We'll be sharing um, those resources in, the, in our show guide as well so that listeners can go ahead and listen to that. Once again, that was Caroline Brouillette. We will continue our discussion with Tom Green after Welcome to Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines or by liking this podcast wherever you listen to your content. Tom Green is a senior climate policy advisor at the David Suzuki Foundation, working to advance climate policies to rapidly reduce Canada's emissions and accelerate the shift to a clean economy refocused on delivering well-being within planetary boundaries. He leads the Foundation's Clean Power Pathway Project, a three-year collaboration with university research partners that coupled electricity modeling research with public engagement to show the role renewables can play in achieving zero-emission grid across Canada by 2035. Hi, Tom. Do you hear me? I do. Anna, how about you? Yes. Loud and clear. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on this call with me. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Great it's to be great. here. But I'd love to start with um, our first question here. So the 2022 budget proposed about $2.2 billion over the next seven years, starting in 2022, to the Environment and Climate Change Action Canada to expand and extend the Low Carbon Economy Fund. This is one of many initiatives that have been announced. 
What would you say are the key fiscal uh, changes in this budget in relation to climate action and climate tech? Well, I think just just stepping back for a sec, like what we know in terms of the, the successful transition and where we are in the climate emergency is that we need to be spending at a much, much higher level. We need to be investing in this transition. Like what we're talking about is really unprecedented. If you think of it, we need every fossil, every furnace in home to be removed and replaced with a heat pump or a, other non-emitting source of, uh, of heat. Uh, we need every car, every bus, every truck to be run on electricity. Um, we need industry to transform and so on. So the scale of finance that we need for climate is is really quite uh, remarkable. You know, different there are different estimates in terms of how much one really should be spending. Um, so that's that's really the baseline that we need to compare this against. Mm -hmm. So the budget may be making some good investments, um, but really we need to be seeing more like uh, two and a half percent of GDP being invested annually. So that would be a, a a step change in how much would be in the federal budget for climate. Mm -hmm. All right. Would you see this climate, uh, this budget in general is keeping us on track to reach our first emission reduction plan set for 2030? No, I would say it has some good elements, uh, but it's not enough to get us there. And first of all, we have to remember that it includes uh, Unfortunately, it continues with fossil fuel subsidies, which are pulling us in the wrong direction. And also it um, invests in some projects which are very poor use of money for, from a climate policy perspective, mm -hmm. so, or meeting our climate targets. So um, giving oil and gas companies money to do carbon capture and storage that's going to be the, the subsidy involved in that tax credit is uh, quite big. By 2026, that subsidy be $1.5 billion cost for taxpayers. So, you know, that's a poor use of funds. And also, um, so 900 million was put in in that budget for clean electricity, and that's to improve interprovincial inter electricity transmission, renewable energy expansion, mm -hmm. which is great. But some of that money is being siphoned off to subsidize small modular nuclear reactors, which are an expensive uh, technology that's not going to be ready in time to be relevant and has the problems associated with the high level nuclear waste that will need to be uh, managed and also the decommissioning of the modular reactors at the end of life. Mm -hmm. We also saw pretty significant investments in electric vehicles. Do you think the government is doing enough thinking about long-term in terms of disposing batteries and preparing for um, more wide-use range uh, of these vehicles? Yeah, I think that in general, our society has a lot more work to do on the circular economy side of things. But I'm pretty confident that because uh, EV batteries are, have, are full of really valuable minerals, uh, there'll be the incentive there to uh, get those batteries. Sometimes they can be used for a second life. So they can you, you take them out of the car and you can continue using them for stationary storage. So backing up the power for the grid, for instance. Um, and then they can be recycled and the minerals recuperated and the next generation of batteries made. Uh, so that's, that's good. And I'm very glad to see that the, the federal government is incentivizing um, larger electric vehicles. So the the buses and the medium and heavy duty trucks. So they've put um, mm -hmm. over 500 million over four years for that purchase incentive. But the one thing they really need to do, you know, we often think of government spending, but often it's cheaper for government to put in place good policy. So we argued in favor of a, a fee bait program for, for vehicles. And the way that would work is if you were to go buy a polluting um, SUV or pickup truck, you know, that burned a lot of gas or, or diesel, you would pay a high fee and that money would be put together 
and then given out to people who were buying electric vehicles. So that would mean that the polluting vehicles become more expensive and the clean vehicles would become cheaper. So that that wouldn't cost the government anything except for a small amount to administer the program. And that's been used to, in other countries. So rather than just um, giving people money to buy electric vehicles, which there's a justice component too, right? Because poor families mm -hmm. might tend to use transit or walk, um, use bicycles, and so they can't access that incentive. And the other thing is the government needs to pass a zero emission vehicle standard, which would force manufacturers to sell an increasing proportion of electric vehicles. Because right now, a lot of Canadians who want to buy an EV instead of a gas car um, mm -hmm. can't find them when they go to their dealers, especially if they're not in Quebec or BC, the two provinces that have that kind of policy. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting way uh, to think about EVs and understanding. I think you did mention uh, low-income families. Those are there's the families who may also be using uh, older vehicles, um, second-hand vehicles that may not quite have gotten electric yet. So that's also going to be a part of the population that may be forgotten in these uh, form of grants and subsidies. Yeah, and uh, and so um, like BC just implemented. Um, a used EV purchase incentive. So we can we can look at those kind of policies as well. And of course, the more e new EVs are on the road, eventually they become older and will be resold, and and that that can help on on those side of things. But for sure, there's this, there's a real equity component there. Um, and investments in public transit, for instance, are really uh, supportive of improving equity because you know public transit is widely accessible. Um, and in some cases, like the city of Regina is looking at making public transit free for certain ages. So that is good from an equity point perspective, but that's only possible if you've got permanent transit funding from the federal government out to the transit authorities. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Canada did mention, I, I think when this budget came out, there was a lot of talk about um, growth and trying to push forward initiatives in climate action. So they did create the Canadian Business Growth Fund that was supposed to impact climate action. Can you kind of explain how the how the funding would be distributed? Do you know if it would be climate specific? Yeah, you know, I don't actually know. It's it's hard to dig into the details of these kind of funds until you start to see the funds in action. Uh, we we have been concerned about how um, sometimes funds that are intended for climate that, that certain companies will find a way to get in there and uh, apply for funding that's not necessarily really advancing uh, climate policy. So one of the we're the David Suzuki Foundation is a member of the, the Green Budget Coalition, and the Green Budget Coalition will be advocating for, in next year's budget. We always put together a all the uh, participating mm -hmm. conservation environmental organizations get together and we put together proposals for the government as to how their government, the next budget should be shaped. And one is that we've proposed that a climate lens be introduced to all government spending programs. In other words, the government would have to do an assessment of, is this proposed um, budget item or a new program, is it pro-climate or how do we need to change it so that it's in alignment with our, our climate goals? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I think integrating climate lenses and making everything kind of better connected in government would, would quite make sense. Um, so policy is not quite so separate. So, mm -hmm. What would you say are Canada's major challenges in transitioning towards a sustainable towards sustainable economic growth or green economic growth? And does the government, specifically the federal government, have the infrastructure and tools in place to address those challenges? Well, so speaking, um, I, I, my training is in ecological economics. So one thing I don't believe in is the idea of sustainable growth. Growth is one of the problems that is 
uh, contributing to climate change and biodiversity collapse around the globe. Like this obsession with humans being richer on average every year or that we can per capita income can keep increasing. Um, that's just going to be associated with ever more demands for materials and energy and production of waste and consequence for the biosphere. And we're making the planet, planet uninhabitable. So I think we should be shifting away from trying for sustainable growth, whatever that is. I think it's a, an oxymoron. Um, and instead, we should be focusing on improving well-being for all. And then that can reorient our, our policy. Like, there's no point in everyone having more per capita income each year if the climate makes, uh, if we end up with an unlivable earth. So just backing up there, that's, that's where I would be coming from. That said, I think there's lots of things we can do to align the economy with um, so that it's much more supportive of a, a resilient and uh, strong biodiversity, strong uh, you know wildlife populations that we care about, and uh, better a better climate future. And so you know investing in uh, clean electricity, getting the rest of the fossil fuel generated electricity off the grid, making sure that the province of Ontario doesn't go ahead with plans for new gas-fired electricity plants, like those would be a disaster because they lock in many decades of emissions. Um, and really looking at how we can electrify the economy as much as possible and use renewables to power the economy. That's that's where our focus has got to be for the next little while. Mm -hmm. I think all those goals require tremendous amount of political and public support. Do you think what the U.S. has done which, with its uh, Inflation Reduction Act would be a good way for Canada to also rally conservatives to the cause of climate action by reframing the issue in a different way? Um, well, you know, um, the David Suzuki Foundation is, of course, nonpartisan. But one thing I'd observe about the emissions, or sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is that despite reframing it that way, it doesn't have support on the right of the political spectrum. So for some reason, uh, unfortunate reason, a lot of people on the right of the spectrum have not come to understand the seriousness of the climate crisis and how it requires all hands on deck and how uh, attending to the climate crisis actually gives us a better future in terms of, you know, we're gonna end up with cleaner cities uh, more different ways to get around, more walkable neighborhoods, um, homes that are more comfortable because they're less drafty, and uh, and also they're not heated with uh, gas, which can cause both indoor, well, if you do cooking, you can have indoor air pollution with using gas. Um, so all the opportunities that come with this transition and we did a study here at the foundation on the many jobs that would be created if um, we powered Canada's grid with renewables and expanded the grid as more of the economy would, was being electrified. So there's real opportunities there. And I, and I hope Canadians from all different parts of the, the spectrum start to recognize um, why we have to attend to carbon pollution and what the benefits are gonna be for our, our communities, our jobs, and for also you know, that's the economy of the future. And that's where the opportunities are going to be. And Canada can't afford to be a laggard in that space. Agreed. I had one final question for you. What advice would you give Canadians who are currently unsatisfied with the government's um, steps in addressing climate change? Well, the key thing is we need to keep uh, the pressure on politicians. Uh, at all levels from municipal, provincial, federal. So electing climate sincere politicians, uh, being involved in political processes. So whether it's your city is preparing a new land use plan, like 
going out there and, and checking with your municipal officials, how have they attended to climate in that? Have, are, they, you know, are they building a climate resilient uh, community? Uh, or pushing on the provincial and federal governments, making sure their budgets are in alignment with what we need from a climate perspective. So, and that's a very lonely thing to do as an individual. So joining some group, uh, whether it's a, you know, local environmental organization or a civil municipal action group or something like that, or a national conservation organization or environmental organization, like all those things and coming together and keeping that pressure on. And meanwhile, looking at our, in our own lives, how can we get off fossil fuels as much as possible? Whether that's, you know, shifting um, my commute to um, public transit and, and uh, maybe an e-bike or uh, selling that car and um, using more public transit or getting an EV and instead getting rid of the gas furnace, putting in a heat pump. Of course, if one rents, there's less that one can do, but uh, you know, putting pressure on building owners to improve the energy efficiency of their building. So we can we can seek to get rid of fossil fuels and and transition to what I think is going to be a, a much more promising way of living. That's awesome. Great advice. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Tom. Yeah, my pleasure, Anna. Thanks for the invitation to come on your show. Once again, that was Tom Green. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining our climate discussions. Today's show was produced by Anna Lazarus. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Take a second to subscribe and like the show wherever you listen to content. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways. 